Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series A Father's Farewell, a study of the book of 2 Timothy. The book of 2 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to his spiritual son Timothy, and through him to all the sons and daughters of God. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. We are going to be continuing in our study here in um, 2 Timothy. We're going to be looking this week at verses 6 through 13, which is actually not exactly kind of where the paragraphs break down or whatever, but you'll see why I'm joining them together. Uh, and it just works out kind of, you know, time-wise as we're trying to break down uh, 2 Timothy here. So we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 6 to 13. I remind us last week we had began looking at Paul's description of the last days. And in this section, he's kind of continuing that. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 6, as always, it'll be up on the screen, uh, and it's in the booklet, and you can uh, follow along in your Bible. Hear now the word of the Spirit of the living God. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men opposed the truth, men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone." You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured? Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Uh, this year I've been doing a lot of reading, and I tend to get in kind of a stream, and I've been reading a lot about the Second World War and particularly about the Nazi regime. Uh, I've mentioned uh, in a previous week that I'm reading a big book called The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. And one of the Things, if you go back and you look at Nazi Germany, and one of the questions that people struggle with is how did a nation get deceived and pulled into doing all of the things that the Nazis did? And one of the answers behind that is a man named Joseph Goebbels. Goebbels actually had, it sounds strange to our ears, his actual government position was Minister of Propaganda. And in the, in the wake of that, propaganda is now a bad word, but it wasn't necessarily thought of that way. But that was his role, was he was the minister of propaganda, and Goebbels was a master of propaganda and deception. And they slowly, over time, deceived an entire nation. They distorted their view of reality. And you see it in many ways so that they described why what they were doing when they took over the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia, when they did the Anschluss down in Austria, that somehow they convinced the German people Germany was not being an aggressor. This was necessary for Germany's protection. They were so effective, 
on the eve of the beginning of actual World War II, as Germany was preparing to attack Poland, which was a far smaller, far weaker country. I mean, the German military was like multiple times the size of the Polish military, but they convinced the German people, oh my gosh, you need to be afraid the Polish army is about to flood across our borders and attack us all, which made no sense at all. But they convinced an entire nation. Goebbels deceived all kinds of other people. But Goebbels himself was deceived. His life ended in the bunker in Berlin when he, his wife, and their very young children all committed suicide because they could not imagine a world without Adolf Hitler. That was inconceivable to them. So I bring Goebbels up because as we're going to see today, there are people who are deceivers of others, but they themselves have been deceived. And that's exactly what Joseph Goebbels was, a man who was greatly deceived himself, and then he spent a lifetime deceiving others. And so today, we're going to continue our look at the last days. Last week, we saw moral decay. Today, we're going to see deception, but we're also going to see truth in the last days. So let's begin with deception. Notice Paul begins here in verse 6, and then he continues it in verse 8, where he's talking about these false teachers who oppose the truth, and they're doing it to encourage sin. He says, they, speaking of the false teachers, are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women. And then in verse 8, he references that they're like Janus and Jambres. Now, notice the, the words are they're pretty strong here. He's talking about the false teachers, and the, the idea that he has here, he says that they are deceitful and they are wicked, and his phrase where the NIVs translated, they worm their way into homes. Some translations say they sneak into homes, and the other word is that they gain control over. The literal word there is they take captive people. Both of those words, to worm the way into home and to take captive, were sometimes used of military units. It's the idea that they're setting up an ambush, and the result of the ambush is they take a group of people captive. And they do this with people who are vulnerable to their deceptions. So there's kind of a military overtone here at first that they are doing a surprise ambush. They're taking these people captive. But then notice in verse 8, Paul compares them to some other people. He says they are like Janus and Jambres, the magicians uh, of Pharaoh who opposed Moses and they opposed God. Now, when you read this, you might say, you know, that's funny because I don't remember the names of the magicians. And you would be right. They're not mentioned in the Old Testament at all. Paul's not quoting out of Exodus or anywhere else in the Old Testament, but this was actually part of a long, long tradition. Paul didn't suddenly get it revealed by the Holy Spirit. These names had been handed down for many, many years among the Jewish people that the names of the two magicians of Pharaoh were actually Janus and Jambres. So we know who Paul is referring to. He is referring to these magicians that had stood with Pharaoh, 
opposed Moses. And you remember when Moses threw down his staff and it turned into a serpent? They used magic arts. And the first couple of things that Moses did, they were able to replicate by magic arts. Now, I want you to think for a moment how strong this analogy is that Paul's using. When he's speaking of these false teachers, and he compares them to Pharaoh's magicians. Number one, those magicians were Egyptians. They were not part of the people of God. Paul's here implying these false teachers are not part of the people of God. They are outside the people of God. Number two, notice that he says that those two men opposed the truth. They opposed Moses. They opposed the truth. Ultimately, they were opposing God himself. And so Paul says these people are claiming that they're bringing truth from God, but they're actually opposing the truth of God. They're actually opposing God himself. Thirdly, notice Janus and Jambres didn't get into a philosophical debate with Moses. They actually used magic and deception attempting to mimic the work of God. Now they could only get so far because God kept doing miraculous things and they couldn't do it but the first one or two they kind of mimic but it was being done by magic and what Paul's kind of bringing up here is this was being done by demonic power not by godly power and so these people here these false teachers are claiming to work by the power of God by the spirit of God but they're not they're like Janus and Jambres they're actually any power they've got is actually coming from a demonic source but then the last thing, and he brings it up a little bit in verse 9 where he says, you know, they, just like those men, their, their deception is going to become apparent to all. Well, it became apparent when God actually judged Janus and Jambres because as the plagues continued, suddenly they not only could not produce the boils and the plagues, they got it so bad themselves they couldn't even stand up in front of Pharaoh. It became apparent, well, you can do some things by your magic tricks, but you can only go so far. And Paul says the same thing is going to be true here of these men. Just like those men were judged by God for their falsehood, so know that these false teachers will be judged. And then notice what he says at the end of verse 8. He says, they're men of depraved minds who, as far as the truth is concerned, are rejected. So number one, they've got depraved minds. And number two, notice he says that they're rejected. Now, what this word literally is, is it's the same word that Paul used when he told Timothy, you've got to labor hard to make sure that you are approved. You're a workman who's approved by God. These people are unapproved. It's the same word, just with the prefix stuck on it, meaning not. They're not approved. Timothy, I told you to be approved. I'm telling you now, these men stand before God not approved. God rejects their work. I told you to be a master laborer that God would look at your work and put his stamp of approval on it. I'm telling you God looks at their work and he rejects it. So this is a very strong condemnation of these men that are teaching. Now we're going to come back to them in just a moment but I want to uh, take a moment to, to address something that's here in the text, and you know it might have struck you as I read it. Um, Paul mentions the people who are receiving these charlatans, and he uses some pretty strong language for them. And I want to take a couple of minutes to address this because in our culture, sometimes people will say Paul just didn't like women. 
That's not the truth. Okay, that's not the case. In fact, if you look in this passage, he's got a lot worse stuff to say about the men than he does about the women. But he does address and bring up the women. Notice in verses 6 and 7, he says, They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women. Now, it's an interesting word there. Some translations have weak-willed. Some translations have immature. The literal Greek word is little women. They get in with these little women, and they're taking control of them. And so some people in our culture look at this and say, see, this is how Paul views women. But it's not how Paul views women. It's how Paul views this specific group of women because of the behavior that they're doing. Now, why I say that, for example, Paul uh, goes out of his way in many places in the Scripture to actually commend women. For example, in the B- Romans chapter 16, if you read it, there is a lot of Paul giving overflowing praise regarding a number of women that are associated with the Roman church. At, I'm just going to read the first four verses to show you, because this is the beginning of Paul giving greetings to people in the church. In verse 1, he says, I commend to you our dear sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at, uh, in Chinchuria. The word servant there is literally the word deaconess. I take it to mean she actually had the position of a deacon in the early church. You, you know, women in the scripture were not elders, but they were deacons in the early church. And this woman, Phoebe, was a deaconess. Notice in verse 2, his, his praise here is even higher. He says, I asked you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you. I mean, whatever this lady needs, I want you to give her because she is a servant of Christ. And then I love this phrase, for she has been a great help to many people, including me. So see, Paul here, he couldn't speak with higher praise of Phoebe. The problem going on in Ephesus is not that these folks are women, but they're giving entryway to these false teachers. Notice he continues on in verse 3 and 4. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. We know a lot in the New Testament about Priscilla and Aquila. They're the ones who trained Apollos. And interestingly, most often in the ancient world, the order was the man first and the woman second. Virtually every time in the New Testament, Priscilla is listed first. All I can take away from that is she probably was even more of the dynamo between Priscilla and Aquila because she's always, if I'm not mistaken, is every last time in the New Testament she is mentioned first. But the two of them labored greatly for the church. They hosted a church in their home. They taught and trained Apollos. They were fellow workers with Paul at various times. In fact, they even did tent making with Paul at one point. So he's got great uh, praise there for them, including Priscilla. And notice in verse 4, they risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. And if you continue reading in Romans 16, there's a number of other women that Paul mentions. So I've taken time to address this a little bit because sometimes in our culture today, you will hear people say that Paul, he just didn't like women. Uh, Read your Bible. It's just not true. What Paul didn't like was people who helped Satan. That he didn't like. Whether you were a man or a woman, 
he didn't like it. Again, notice the men that are the teachers here, he's compared to magicians of Pharaoh that opposed God. He said that they are depraved in their mind. He's spoken very, very strong words. So the problem here in 2 Timothy with this group is not that they are women, but that they're these little women. They're these immature women. They are, they're not thinking through. They're getting duped and pulled in, and they're helping these men who were false teachers. Notice as he continues in verse 6 and 7, he says that they are the kind who are loaded down with sins. They are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. And so he says there's something in them, there's something in their makeup, there's something in the way they're living their lives that opens them up so that they are seduced by these people that he's comparing to these magicians of Pharaoh, and they're starting to follow them. It is even possible, and we don't know this, but as some scholars try to go through First and Second Timothy, it's possible that there was an impure aspect to their relationship as well. This may have led to sexual problems between the male false teachers and the females that were helping them. In particular, it appears, if you look around, many of them may have been young, wealthy widows. This was very common in the ancient world. And so, for example, Paul, if you look back at 1 Timothy 5, Paul tells Timothy, look, you got to be really careful. I want you to treat older men like they're your father. I want you to treat older men like they're your mother. And if it's a younger woman, Timothy, you must treat her like she's your sister. you got to be absolutely pure. Don't give any cause for anyone to think there's anything going on between you and the other young women in the church. Well, one of the reasons it appears that may be going on is that's exactly what's happening with the false teachers. They're, they're kind of worming their way in. And so Paul, later on in 1 Timothy 5, says, look, if it's the young widows, what I counsel you to do is, why don't the young widows get remarried? Because otherwise, they, they get sucked into this stuff and all kinds of problems come out. And we know from outside the New Testament, actually, that there were, this was a fairly common thing in the ancient world. And if you think about it, women had very limited opportunities in the ancient world. And if you were a young widow and had a lot of money and some person came along and suddenly was offering you some possibilities and potentials, they became easy prey for unscrupulous people. And might I say, today that's not true specifically of women, but that is true of a lot of people. There are a lot of people on TV and everything else that take advantage of people in desperate circumstances. And the church needs to stand up and say, we, we, don't, we have no part in this. We need to be above board. We need to be beyond reproach in our conduct with one another. And so notice it ends up by saying they're always learning. They're engaged in all this talk. And it's one of the things with the Gnostics, this group that's there in Ephesus, they loved going into all kinds of speculation. Remember Paul's talked about these myths and these tales that they go into and all these endless genealogies. They like to go into all this stuff, but it doesn't lead anywhere. And so he says they're always learning, they're always talking, they're always going over this, but they never actually come to a knowledge of the truth. It never really firmly takes root in them. And so his key point is these teachers, rather than helping these vulnerable people uh, to the truth, they're sneaking up on them. 
They're taking them captive. They're using them for their own ends. And what it appears to be doing is, if you want to put it in modern parlance, it ends up vaccinating them against the true faith. It leads them astray. And then as the true faith is there, they're resistant to it because they've embraced this other. And so Paul then kind of resumes. Uh, eventually, he brings back up the false teachers themselves. Obviously, he does there in verses 8 and 9. But down in verse 13, he describes the teachers because his main concern is the teachers. And notice what he says about them. While evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Notice how he describes them. They are evil. I mean, Paul's not pulling punches. And they're imposters. The word imposter is an interesting word because the original meaning of that particular Greek word was a sorcerer, a magician, a conjurer. So there's a little bit of a, a link back to Janus and Jambres. He's saying, look, those guys were conjurers. They were sorcerers. They were, and ultimately they're imposters. They're acting like they're something they're not. They're acting like they're representatives of God, but they are not. But the word also came to just be used for swindlers, cheats, imposters. So whichever nuance Paul's giving more to, that they're kind of being, you know, conjurers uh, and sorcerers, or whether it's more that they're just cheats and swindlers, either way, it's a very negative word. It's not a, it's not a thing that you'd want somebody to call you. But Paul says that's absolutely what they are. And then notice he, he makes a very interesting phrase here. He says that these people are advancing. The NIV has it, they're going from. The, the little words, they're advancing. They're making an advance. Unfortunately, they're advancing hard in the wrong direction. They're going from bad to worse. He had used the same word in the same metaphor because it's a word that literally means to advance, to go forward. But uh, he used it in 2 Timothy 2.19 to say that these false teachers advance in ungodliness. Their, their, their only advance is ungodliness. Here, their advance is from bad to worse. And then notice he concludes by saying they deceive, but they are themselves deceived. Kind of as I mentioned of Joseph uh, Goebbels. They're deceiving others. So they're starting with these probably young widows, these little women that Paul talked about, they're getting kind of a base operations, but they're spreading out in the church. Remember he had said their teaching is spreading like gangrene. They're trying to reach out to others. But the ultimate truth is they're deceived themselves. They're not, it's not that they know they're deceiving others. They're like Joseph Goebbels. He thought he was serving things right. He thought he was actually doing what was for the good of the German people. He could not have been more wrong. You look at it and you think, how does your mind get so warped when you get deceived? And the Apostle Paul spoke about this in 1 Timothy 4. Again, about the last days, he says, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by who? Demons. Do you hear how this relates back to Janus and Jambres? Paul's saying this isn't just a philosophical argument. There is a spiritual power behind this, but that spiritual power is not God. It's demonic. 
And then he says in verse 2, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with the hot iron. So that's what Paul says. The demons don't appear themselves and do it. They deceive others. They deceive these false teachers and they speak through them. Just like the Holy Spirit spoke through the Apostle Paul to give us this scripture, these demonic spirits are speaking through false teachers who are now deceived, who are taken captive. And Paul said their, their conscience is actually seared. I mean, what a, what a picture. What happens when you sear something with a hot iron? What does it lose? Feeling sensitivity. It can no longer do it. He's saying their conscience has been burnt. It doesn't even, they no longer are able to discern truth from error. They have been so deceived. They might even think, for example, if Hitler's going to be gone, I'd have to kill myself. Because how could there be a world without the Fuhrer? If you're of sane mind, you might say it could be a much better world. But when you've been deceived, and that's exactly what happens to these people, they may believe what they say, they've been deceived, and they are simply deceiving others rather than helping them. So Paul's telling us, look, in the last days, there are going to be these false teachers, and they're going to be the deceived mouthpieces of demonic lies, and they're going to be trying to sneak in. They're setting ambush. They're going to try and get into the people of God to distort the truth, to draw them away. And remember from last week, this is ultimately so that they can keep walking in sin. Because deception is not to get you to walk in holiness. It's to get you and me to walk into sin. And if that's where we were to stop today, that would be a rather depressing message. But I want to remind us that that is not where it ends. In fact, there is also truth. And in fact, I want us to look at the power of truth and godliness in the last days. There is this moral decay and there is deception, but there is godliness and there is truth, and it will be here in the last days. So notice Paul in verse 10 does this big shift. He says, you, however, but you, Timothy. I've been saying all this. This is what God has been telling us. In the last days, expect this. But you. We're going to now take a turn, Timothy. I've been talking about these false teachers, but now I want you to think. And I'm going to set myself up, Paul says, in contrast to them. They are an example. You are watching them in Ephesus. I've named some of them. Hymenaeus and Philetus and Alexander. I've given you the names. You see what they're like. You understand the description I've been giving. Now I'm going to call you back to another description. I'm going to remind you, Timothy, you've watched me for years. And so he says, you, however, know all about, notice the first thing, my teaching. And then secondly, my way of life. My teaching is this word I mentioned a few weeks ago that is used so many times in the pastoral epistles. It doesn't mean the way I teach. It's not the activity of my teaching. You've observed the content of what I teach. You've observed what some translations use the word doctrine. You've observed my sound, healthy teaching. You've watched theirs that's like gangrene, but you've also seen my sound, healthy teaching. But not only that, secondly, you've seen my way of life. You've seen that I have displayed what godliness looks like. 
They teach error and they live in moral decay. I have taught truth, Timothy, and I've showed you what holiness and godliness looks like in action. And then thirdly, Paul brings up and says, you've seen my consistency in ministry. Notice he says, my way of life, I mean, my purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance. Those are all kind of just descriptions. You've seen what I've been like. I've had one purpose, which is to make Christ Jesus known. You've seen my faith, the way that I've lived before God, my love towards others, my endurance, and we're going to see why he turns to endurance in just a moment. But all of that is the description of his ministry. And all of this reminds us of exactly what Paul had told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. We looked at this over the last couple of weeks, but I bring it up again. 1 Timothy 4, 15 and 16, where Paul says, Timothy, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Same word. These men are advancing from bad to worse. Timothy, you've got to give yourself to what I'm talking about so that everyone can see your advance. Your advance to better and, and more understanding of the truth and proclamation of truth and more godliness in your lifestyle that they are seeing day by day by day you're being conformed more to the image of Christ. And so he says, Timothy, verse 16, watch your life and your doctrine, same word, my teaching. You gotta watch them both, Timothy. You watch what you teach, what you believe, and you watch how you are living in front of people. And why do you do this? Watch your life and doctor closely, persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Truth and godliness have the power to save the church from the powerful deception of the last days. Please hear me, sometimes Christians talk about deception as if it's stronger than truth. It is not. Darkness is not stronger than light. Darkness cannot put out a light, but light can banish darkness. Deception cannot conquer the truth, but the truth can push back deception. And so he says, Timothy, you've got to watch your life. You've got to watch your doctrine. You've got to be studying and teaching and proclaiming the truth. And then you've got to be applying it in your own life. Because as people hear the truth and as they see the truth being lived out in your life in front of you, it will defeat the deception. That is where the protection comes in. And so for us, we need to make a note of this. Church leaders have to give themselves fully to watching their life and their doctrine because they are powerful tools for the Spirit's use in protecting the congregation. It is imperative. I, I've been urging us in this. It's one of the things we learn in 2 Timothy. Whether it is in this congregation after I lie moldering in the grave or whether it's some other congregation you go to, always make sure, never submit yourself to a group of men who are not watching their life and their doctrine closely. If they are not careful what they believe, what they teach, and how they live, do not be part of that, because if you do, you are opening yourself up to deception. That's how gangrene gets in. Always make sure of that. But I want to remind us as well, this is true for every one of us in every area of life. 
Parents, how do you protect your kids in these last days? Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Believe the truth. Speak the truth. Impress the truth. And you better live the truth. You better not say one thing and then live another. Do I back up what I'm trying to train my kids in with my life as well as my words? What's going to be powerful to open the eyes of our friends who've been deceived? Watch your life and your doctrine closely. They are powerful tools in the hands of the Spirit of God to open the eyes of the lost. Don't come away from these passages and believe, oh my gosh, it's just deception's going to come in and it's going to wipe the truth out. That is not going to happen. At the end of all things, deception will be gone and the truth of God will stand. No matter what goes on in this age, no matter what happens in our culture around us, I assure you of this, the church, which is the pillar and the foundation of truth, Paul writes to Timothy, that church will stand. It will survive. It will be here proclaiming the gospel until the day Jesus Christ returns. The truth will win. In the meantime, what do we do? Occupy the ground you got. How do I do that? Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Speak the truth. It is powerful. And live in accord with the truth. It is powerful. Now, there's a requirement that comes with that, though. This is why Paul, at the end, he said, hey, you've been watching. You've listened to my doctrine. You've seen my life. You've seen how I've been faithful in ministry. But as he goes through the faithful in ministry, he starts turning to things like endurance. And then notice in verse 11, persecutions, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured? Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. So he's back to telling Timothy, look, I'm encouraging you to be faithful. Watch your life, your doctrine, stand firm and do this. But there is a price. There's a price of admission. And that price of admission is suffering. And it's interesting, he brings up uh, these three places, Iconium, uh, I mean, uh, Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. These are very early. You can read about them in Acts 13 and 14. But he brings them up because this is Timothy's hometown. Okay, it's where Timothy is from. It's where Timothy first met Paul. And it's pretty interesting. In Antioch, Paul was run out of town. In Iconium, they were trying to stone him, and he had to flee to get out of town before they did. In Lystra, where Timothy was from, they actually did stone him, drag him outside the city, and leave him for dead. So Paul is here reminding Timothy Do you remember when you first became a believer? You were watching? What was it like for me then? See, Timothy, of all people, can't say, Paul, you sold me a bill of goods. I had no idea when I joined your team. I thought this was all going to be wonderful. We were going to be writing letters back and saying how many people got converted, all this great stuff happening. Paul's able to say, you knew better than that. 
You were there. The first time you met me, they stoned me and left me for dead. It's not like any of this was a surprise. From the moment of your conversion, you have observed suffering is part of what it means to be a faithful minister of Christ Jesus. But interesting, notice Paul says, but the Lord rescued me from all of them. I didn't even realize this until studying it. That's actually a quote out of Psalm 34. Psalm 34, 19. In the surrounding verses, it says, not one of his bones will be broken. It's taken as a messianic prophecy. But Paul here says, look, the, the Lord delivered me from every one of these. When we come to the Lord's table, we're going we're gonna to do a recitation of the early part of Psalm 34. And he says that in this case, it literally meant the Lord rescued me. When they stoned me and left me for dead, the Lord rescued me. I didn't die. Even though they stoned me to death, I did not die. The Lord rescued me. But I want us to understand something. Paul's writing this letter right now knowing he's not going to be rescued this time from death in this life. He's going to write Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. So in just the coming weeks, we're going to see this. In verse 6 and 18, Paul says in verse 6, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. Let's put that in modern English. What's Paul saying? I'm going to die. He knows what's coming. But notice in verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Has Paul forgotten that just 12 verses ago he said he was going to die? No. But see, what he's saying is, is the Lord who has many times rescued me from death is now going to rescue me through death itself. They may put me to death they may put my head down and chop my head off as a Roman citizen, but it will not matter. The Lord will rescue me from death. He will deliver me safely into his kingdom. He will keep that which I've entrusted to him for that day. And that's exactly what Paul is telling him here, that he would be rescued. And this is important for us because I wish I could read this section and say, wow, glad I'm not called to be part of Paul's apostolic team. And Timothy might have said, yeah, well, Paul, you know, I have noticed you tend to get stoned a lot and stuff, okay? But he can't say that because what's the very next verse? In fact, all, how many is all? That's right. Amazingly enough, I can tell you this, if you read the Greek, guess what it means? All, every single one. If you desire to live a godly life, last week we were looking at that word godliness. If you desire godliness, you will be persecuted. Not a possibility, it is a promise. Everyone who desires godliness in character will find themselves opposed. They will find themselves ridiculed, marginalized, and persecuted. You might be run out of town, you might be threatened, or you might get stoned. But somewhere on that spectrum, it is bound to happen. Those who desire to be faithful to the truth and godliness, to watch their life and their doctrine closely, in this age of deception and moral decay, must be prepared to suffer for faithfulness. 
It is not possible to be faithful and not suffer. They're mutually exclusive. I know that's a cheery note, but it's the requirement. But I remind you what Paul is telling Timothy is if you watch your life and you watch your doctrine closely, it will overcome the deception and moral decay around you. And that's hope for us. So how do we apply the word and we come to the Lord's table? Do you and I see, we live in the last days. It's not a question. It's not something in the future. The last day started when Jesus came, and they go right up until he returns. And there is not any more, but I mean the really, really, really last days. You're in the last days. There's only one set of last days. We've been in them for 2,000 years now. In those last days, there is going to be deception attempting to invade the church. Okay, I was mentioning Goebbels earlier, but do note, they, they worked and did invade much of the church in Germany. So that if you had come into the church, churches that had previously believed the Bible, you wouldn't see a cross back here. What would have been draped back here? The swastika. If that doesn't put horror in your soul, it's all over the place. Very few Christians did not give in to the deception. So this is about spiritual deception invading the church. False teachers are constantly going to try and worm their way in. And they are going to constantly try to redefine sin, to redefine redemption and salvation, to redefine spirituality to seduce God's people. Today, what is today in the church's calendar? Palm Sunday. And what happened on Palm Sunday? What did the crowd shout? Hosanna to the son of David. Somebody help me out. Five days later, what did they shout? Same crowd. Okay, and that's a danger in the church. If, if we were in a liturgical context, we would wave palm branches this morning, and then what do we do with the palm branches afterwards? Anybody know? You burn them down, and next Ash Wednesday, where do I put them? Right on my head is a sign of my sin, because I shouted Hosanna to the son of David, and then I got seduced. It's an ever-present danger for the church an ever-present danger for the church. These teachers will try to redefine the gospel or simply focus on issues that are, that are uh, disputable. They're not central to the gospel. This is all that Paul's saying. They get off and they argue about all this stuff and it's got nothing to do with the gospel. Okay? They will attempt to do that. And that's why we have to anchor ourselves firmly in the Word of God so we know truth from deception. It may seem so. Why, why don't we just gather once a year and have a sermon? Why do we do this week after week after week? Because deception is after you and me week after week after week. In fact, it's after us day after day after day. Friend, you've got to be in the Word of God every day. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 8, this is actually quoted, uh, Jesus quotes verse 18 in the book of Hebrews. It's attributed to Jesus. But in verses 19 and 20, Isaiah says this. 
When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Now they may not come today and tell you to consult the dead, but they will try to seduce. They will try and both sides. And Isaiah's word is the same thing we need. Go to the Torah. Go to God's word of instruction. Look there. If they do not speak according to this, they don't have the light of dawn. They've got nothing. They may stand up. They may look good. They may get massive crowds around them. None of that matters. Do they speak according to the Word of God? We're going to spend a couple of weeks looking at what that means over the next couple of weeks. Please hear me. If you've known me for more than five minutes, you're bound to know I'm passionate about the Word of God. And here is why. It is our truth. It doesn't matter what I think. You don't need funny stories from me. You don't need to hear everything about me and my wife and my kids and grandkids and all of that. You need the Word of God. It's the only thing that can protect your soul. Every week, this, this summer, when I'm on sabbatical, there's going to be six other men that are going to be standing here preaching week by week. You need that. You need that injection because the enemy is always trying to infect your soul. And you need it every week, and then you need to reinforce it every day, like an IV drip of the Word of God to protect me and to keep me, and nothing else will do it. The Word of God, wherever you go, church. Some of y'all are going to be moving this summer. We got folks that are getting stationed in the military. I beg with you, I plead with you. That is number one. They can have the ugliest building in the county, be lacking in every other area. Are they preaching the word of God? Because nothing else will save your soul. They can have the most beautiful cathedral and end up unfurling a swastika. If they don't have the word of God. So I, I, will, <laughs> I will stop with that and just say, am I growing in my knowledge of the word? Am I progressing? Because they're going to try and get you to progress the wrong way. Am I progressing? Am I growing every day? I've been a believer now 44 years. I'm amazed. I will open the Word of God tomorrow and say, that's life. That, Lord, you, you are speaking to me. Lord, you are feeding me 44 years in. There's no movie I could watch for 44 years, no other book I could read, but the Word of God is living. It is alive. Open yourself up to it every day. And then briefly, I'll say a word about suffering and a word of encouragement will come to the table. You know, Paul's pointing out here, that it's a theme in this book, isn't it? Over and over and over again, we're hearing about suffering. That if we're faithful to Jesus, to the truth, it's going to bring rejection, suffering, and persecution. And I want to just tell you, don't try to find the way out of it. There is no way out of it. We just have to simply accept the fact. And once we've accepted the fact, then we can go on. Then we can just live life and say, okay, this is the way it's going to be. 
it's kind of like, you know, if you live in Siberia in the winter, it's fruitless and pointless to say, I wonder if it'll be warm tomorrow. No, it won't be. Just go ahead and get it in your head. It's going to be cold tomorrow. And then we, if we can understand that, we can live in light of it. It's going to be the price for being a faithful Christian. There may be an increasing price to be paid for us in this culture right now. Now, I am praying for a third great awakening. I urge you every day, pray for a third great awakening. I would rather live during the third great awakening. But it may be that there's going to be a price to be paid. But I want to encourage you, truth will win out in the end. If my last breath is as they burn me at the stake, truth will win out in the end. It does not matter what happens here. Truth will win out. So I want to encourage you, walk out of this today encouraged. God's Word can protect you. God's Word can protect your kids, and it can protect your grandkids. God's Word can protect this church, and He will rescue us from every danger, including if they lock the doors on us and burn this building down with every one of us in it. He will rescue us through death and deliver us into His eternal kingdom, and there is nothing they can do to stop that. He has already conquered death. And we live in light of that. So I encourage you to, to, to hold to that, to cling to that. Now what we're going to do is we're going to stand and we're going to do communion a little differently today. We're going to begin by doing a reading together out of Psalm 34. So if you can go ahead and put the first couple verses up, Danny. So we're going to be doing the first eight verses. I'm going to read a verse, and then y'all are going to read a verse, and we'll read the last one together. And you'll be surprised at how you know some of these. But hear them for how the Lord promises to, uh, to rescue you and I and calls for us to find our refuge in Him. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. You can be seated. The call this morning is if you are here and you find your refuge in Jesus Christ, you're invited to the table. The Lord invites all who find their refuge in him to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. He is our refuge and he will rescue us. For I receive from the Lord 
But I also passed unto you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Brothers and sisters, what we're going to do a little differently this morning, I'm simply going to be speaking that this is the bread, uh, this is the body and the blood of our Lord, and I want to encourage you to respond with thanks be to God. We'll take it. So it's going to be much simpler this morning than normal because I want us to focus, He is our refuge. Okay? And then we'll conclude a prayer. So if you can go ahead and open your packet and get the bread ready, brothers and sisters, my friends, the body of Christ, broken and given for you. Thanks be to God. Take and eat. Brothers and sisters, my friends, the blood of Christ poured out for you. Thanks be to God. Let's stand together, and as I cry out to our God, please join with me. Father, you are the source and fount of all that is true and beautiful and good. In this world of deception and deformation and decay, we find our refuge in you. Lord Jesus, eternal Son of God, you are the way and the truth and the life. In this world of dead ends and double dealing and death, we find our refuge in you. Holy Spirit of the living God, you are the spirit of truth. In this world that is so full of deceit and duplicity and deviousness, we find our refuge in you. Our triune God, keep us by your power and word until we stand before your glorious presence without fault, and with great joy. And send us forth now, fed by your truth and your grace, to spread your word and blessings to all. And the people of God say, Amen. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, may the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, May he himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. Brothers and sisters, you are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing. Amen. I hope to see you Friday night for our Good Friday service. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.